Uh, we're going to be in John chapter 14 for the rest of you as we continue our series in the Apostles' Creed. We'll be beginning in, in verse 15 before, um, before I get to God's word. Uh, I do want to say we did just pray for, uh, for, for, Mark, and Aaron, uh, for Mark and Amy and, and Lord blessing them as they head off to Sony Brook, uh, the mission there in Long Island to, to, to teach at that school. Um, many of you know Mark and Amy, uh, and so I'll speak corporately to their effect. Um, it's, a, it's a significant loss for us to send them out or for the Lord to take them. I think he took them, because I was praying against it the whole time. Um, but uh, the Lord's taking them. Uh, I've described Mark and Amy as relational glue. Uh, many of you, some of the first people you met uh, were Mark and Amy and got connected to them. I also knew God was doing a really good thing in our church um, early on in our time, my time here. And, and that I remember one Sunday that, that Byron and Devereux Cousins, who Byron is about as tea party right wing as you can get, right? And, and we're sitting and having a lunch with Mark and Amy, which... They're, for our church, they're about as liberal as you can get. Uh, at least at the time, they, they had like a hatchback with, uh, covered with bumper stickers. Um, and I remember thinking, man, that's great. If our most conservative visitors and our most liberal visitors can be sitting there enjoying one another, then that's, that's a good thing. The gospel and the spirit of God is uniting them. I will personally miss you guys deeply. Um, I, Amy is apparently, she's writing, Amy wrote a book that was like, I think, second best children's book in Georgia a couple years ago. It was awarded on... Uh, the out, walking through the alphabets with birds. She's about to do another one with bugs, and I'm A. Uh, uh, in, in the new one, I'm an assassin beetle because uh, uh, he's known for his aggressiveness. Uh, that's how she describes my preaching. Um, but they have been an incredible encouragement to me personally. Uh, Mark in my life has been, I think, as close to a Barnabas as I've ever had, and probably other than my wife has probably been the closest friend in my life so, since college. So very, very um, sad to see you guys go, but delighted that the Lord is taking you to a great mission field. God's word, John 14, as we get to the Holy Spirit and what unites us as friends and what unites us as a church is the Holy Spirit. We read and study him this morning. I'll pick up in verse 15 and read through verse 27. If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave, leave you as orphans. I will come to you yet a little while and the world will see me no more. But you will see me because I live. You also will live. And that day you will know that I am in the Father and you in me and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, the other Judas, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. This ends the reading of God's holy and infallible word. Let's pray. 
Gracious Heavenly Father, um, we just pray that as we talk about your Holy Spirit, that your Holy Spirit would descend, that you have spoken to us by your Spirit, through your Word, but now I pray that, Lord, by your Spirit, you would drive that Word deep into our hearts. And so I pray that this, this lesser known, perhaps, lesser loved figure of the Trinity would be better loved today because of this time. May we love Jesus more. May we worship you and obey you better because of this time. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Um, the Holy Spirit. There is a lot of churches that like to talk about the Holy Spirit a lot. And they talk about him a lot because they believe that the Christian life, the fullness of the Christian life, involves a special, unique, and specific experience of the Holy Spirit. They often will connect the Holy Spirit to things such as tongues and speaking in a, a foreign spiritual language or prophesying or great healings. That is often connected to the Spirit. And often the danger with that is not so much that it's, it's great to focus on the Spirit, but the issue is often in doing so, they talk about the Spirit in such a way that they reject or minimalize what is the normative and significant and redemptive experience of knowing Jesus Christ. So they often talk about that we need this second baptism of the Holy Spirit. And there are dangers that come with that. But there are dangers on the other side too. Many Christians and many churches rarely mention or even talk about the Holy Spirit. And the particular tribe in God's church that this particular church belongs to is one of those tribes. We are Presbyterians. We are not necessarily known for our great love for the Trinity, and for, or if not for the Trinity, but for the Spirit, or at least we have not given him near as enough focus. There's an old joke about the, the Trinity deciding on their vacation plans for the summer. The Father decides to go to the mountains, because that reflects his, his majesty and his glory and his power. The Son desires to go back to Palestine, and he's going to go on a, a lovely trip of healing people through Palestine, as he loved to do once upon a time as he walked the earth. The Spirit decided to go to a Presbyterian church, because he wanted to go to some place that he had never been before. <laughs> the point is, is there are denominations and people who simply don't know what to do with the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. In fact, most. Even those who talk about him the most don't seem to understand him very well in his normative work in the way he baptizes us. And often Presbyterians, the most theologically minded perhaps of those in the church world, don't understand him either. We need to know and grasp the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, and here's why. Because all this theology that we, and all this doctrine that we've talked about in the Apostles' Creed, it is not made relevant and is not pressed into your life unless you have the Holy Spirit. The stuff about God the Father creating and the Son redeeming, that is not made manifest into our lives unless we have the Holy Spirit of God. There is a lot of push and weight these days given to having a church that is relevant the Spirit of God makes the gospel relevant. He makes it relevant to your everyday life. And so he is not merely an academic thing to be studied, but he is something to be possessed by so that you live out the truths of the gospel in the everyday. So here's what I'll talk about this morning. We're going to look directly at the Holy Spirit. I'm going to ask four questions that we're just going to seek to answer from the text and other places in Scripture. Four questions to help us study the Holy Spirit this morning. First is, who is he? Second, what does he do? Third, how do we hear the Holy Spirit? And fourth, how do we receive the Holy Spirit? This is going to be a little bit encyclopedic in nature, and all that we're going to try to cover 
I think I have made plans after this week in my studies to come back, and we'll probably do a whole series at some point, probably some summer series, directly on the Holy Spirit, because there's simply too much to glean into. But here we go. Four questions. First one is this. Who is the Holy Spirit? And the answer, in his being and in his essence. There's plenty of things about who he is, and you can see it in his activities. But in his essence, he is two things. First, he is a person. And second, he is God. And as God, he's a member of the Trinity. First, he's a person. Jump over to verse 17 of John 14 there. It says this, Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him, you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. You might notice there that the Spirit is not referred to by Jesus as an it. He is not simply some weird, bizarre, bizarre mythical force or energy out in the world. He is a person. He is a he. This is an individual person. The scriptures consistently give to the Holy Spirit the characteristics and the feelings and the expressions of an active person. Ephesians 4.30 says that you can grieve the Holy Spirit. Hebrews 10.29 says that the Holy Spirit can get outraged. And Romans 15 says that the Holy Spirit loves. He is grieved. He is angry. He loves. These are experiences and activities of a person, of someone with feelings, And therefore, he is a personal being. He can be personally known. He is not merely some force to be engaged with out there in the hinterlands. So that's the first thing. He's a person. Second, he is a member of the Trinity as God. Throughout the gospel, Jesus says, I am equal to God. He says he is the Lord. He says he is the Son of God. He is the Messiah. All these ways of saying that he is equal and tantamount to God the Father. He says he reveals God the Father. You cannot know the Father unless you've seen the Son. And now what we also see in John 14 is that Jesus is sending someone to live inside of us who is exactly like Jesus and who is like the Father. Look at verse 16 and verse 17. And I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him, you know him, for he dwells with you and will be with me in you. Jesus says that the Holy Spirit is going to come live inside of us. Then he continues this very dizzying display of Trinitarian theology and relationships here. Verse 18, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Jesus is saying that he will come into us. But how is he coming into us? By the Holy Spirit. Verse 19, yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me because I live in you and you also will live in me. And then we have this, the apex of this Trinitarian relational complexity going on in verse 20 where it says, in that day you will know that I am in the Father and you in me and I in you. What he's saying is that God the Father, Jesus is in God the Father and Jesus is in us. Why? Because the Spirit of God is in us. What is being revealed here is that the one, the Holy Spirit, just like Jesus and just like the Father, is coming in to enter our lives. Jesus and the Father are persons in the Trinitarian Godhead, and the Holy Spirit is a member of that Trinity. He is fully God, he is equal in power, and he is equal in glory. And so if you have glazed over in those last two minutes, wake back up for just a second, because this is of enormous importance. If I am saying that the Holy Spirit is God and that he is personal, and then we're saying that he comes and he enters your life, the implication of that is what? God lives inside you. That is unbelievable. And what we see here is in the great work of the gospel and all of the story of redemption as we see the Holy Spirit playing out the very work that he has, his role within the Trinity. 
You see, what we see in, our, in the work of salvation, the Father is the author. He is the one who elects and he predestines before, all, before all the beginning of time. And it doesn't matter what you think about what that actually means. It states it very clearly in the scriptures. So we can debate about what that means, but it's clear that's what the Father is doing. Okay? The second, we see that the Son comes and accomplishes our salvation. The Father plans it. He authors it. The Son accomplishes it. He has done everything on the cross to win for you all that is necessary for your salvation. But that is so distant from us. It is 2,000 years ago. How is that redemption? How is that salvation that God the Father has planned made alive in your life? By the Holy Spirit. See, it is the Spirit's job to apply the salvation. The very things that Jesus has done for you, the very things that God the Father has planned for you, the Holy Spirit makes real and alive in your life. Anything substantive, anything substantive, And your spiritual life has occurred because it is the Holy Spirit doing something inside of you. Any experience we have of God, any experience of our redemption is a work of the Spirit. So let me draw this point out when you're looking at one aspect of Christianity. See, a key aspect of Christianity is that in creation we are meant to dwell with God, to walk with God in relationship with Him. But when we sin, because of our sin, we were separated from God. We were pushed away from him by our sin. We could not be near him. And there was a chasm, an infinite chasm between us and God. But now we have been made to know God, it says in John 20. He lives in us. And we have been reconnected to him. John 14, 20, in the dizzying display there, says, I am in the Father, Jesus says, and you are in me. We are in Jesus, and I am in you. Do you see the intimacy of the connection between us and the Godhead? That's unbelievably unfathomable. That Jesus has come to live inside of us by the Spirit, and we have now gone to live inside of Jesus. That's called union with Christ. How intimately connected we are to him. And the connecting point of us, fallen man, who have been now redeemed and made close to God again, the connecting point is the Holy Spirit. Jesus extends himself out into us through the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit does a work in us so that by faith we are extended out to connect to Jesus. That is a work of the Holy Spirit. And here's what I want you to see and why this is so important. Because the Holy Spirit is not an impersonal force. The Holy Spirit is a divine person who has come to live in your life. And when you are filled with the Holy Spirit, you get baptized with the Holy Spirit. But then when you are filled, when your life is filled with the Holy Spirit, it means that when he has engaged, when Jesus has come to live inside of you, when God himself has come to live inside of you, everything changes. Right? If the President of the United States were to come fill your house, and by that I mean he comes to dwell in your house, he fills it in that everything now revolves around him. You would not live your life like you normally do if the president comes into your house. You clean your house, every way you act changes, and so when the Holy Spirit of God himself enters your life, everything changes in your life as well. So we see the importance of the Holy Spirit, and we see who he is in that. He is personal, he is God, and he enters into our very lives to change us. But here's the question. When the Holy Spirit enters our lives, what does he do when he gets there? What does the Holy Spirit do? Verse 16, and then jump down to verse 26, and we read these. Jesus says, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper. Helper's the key word there, to be with you forever. Then 26, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things. There is a key word, and a very well-known word in the Greek uh, for that word helper is the word parakaleo. Para means to stand alongside or even around is the image that we're given of sorts. Not in front of, not behind, but to stand with you in every way. 
And kaleo means to call, to prod, to urge, even to yell at you of sorts, to argue with you, to call you to do something. So he is with you, alongside you, but he's urging you forward. He's beckoning you. He's arguing with you. In other translations, it's a difficult term to try to translate. Other translations have it, has it, and these are all kind of words. This is the semantic range to help us understand it. But they also refer to this, as, you, as the spirit here, as the counselor, as the advocate between us and God. He argues with us. Now, what does that mean? When the spirit comes to urge us and to call us, what is he doing? He's speaking to us. Here's what I want you to see. So he's very, that's his main role. He's speaking to us in our hearts, but he's going to tell us, we're going to look at three things that the Spirit tells us today. The first is this, that the Spirit tells us of our sin. Verse 7, verse 8, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. Jesus is saying this. Say, I'm going to go away, for, I do not, for if I did not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes... He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgments. The Spirit comes to convict us of sin. And while the conviction of sin is often a painful and difficult thing, if you have the conviction of sin, you should rejoice. You should rejoice, and here's why. Because you see, the conviction of sin is the initial evidence that you have been made spiritually alive. Titus 3, 4, and 5 talks about this, this whole being made spiritually alive thing, and the theological term for it is regeneration or renewal or new birth in talking about Jesus when Jesus talks in John 3 to Nicodemus. But it says this in Titus 3, 4, and 5, when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. Here's how, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. The means by which you are enabled to have faith and connect yourself to the life of Jesus is because the Holy Spirit first indwells your heart and makes you alive spiritually. Ephesians tells us we were dead spiritually, but the Spirit enters in and makes us alive. Now, here's the question. How do you know if someone is alive or not? If someone is laying there kind of in a prone position, not moving, you run up to them, what is one of the first things you're going to do? Some of you will look for for a pulse if you're smart, but the rest of us... The rest of us, the initial thing you're going to do is check for breath, right? You're going to see if they're breathing. And the Old Testament word for spirit is ruach, which literally means wind or breath. And when the Holy Spirit regenerates us by bringing the breath in us, what he has done is he has performed spiritual CPR in us so that we are made alive again. But it's beyond simply the image of CPR because he doesn't simply expel breath into our lungs. He comes in to be our lungs. That's what he comes to do. And the evidence, the hot air that emanates from your spiritual life that shows that the Spirit of God is in there breathing for you is that you are convicted of sin. If you have a sense that you have lived wrongly, the breath of God is in you, you will begin repenting and confessing. You will sense that these things that you have done your whole life, that they break the heart of God and you are broken over that. So it is a great, a great blessing to be convicted of sin. You, it cannot be the only thing, but it is the beginning. It is the initial evidence that you are spiritually alive. So that's the first thing he does. He makes us alive, and he convicts us of our sin. The second thing the Spirit tells us of is our redemption. The Holy Spirit is an advocate. He is a helper. He is a counselor who calls and urges us toward a direction to set our sights on something. But what is that something that the Holy Spirit, is, Spirit urges us towards? It's not himself. He's not calling attention to, to him. He's not saying, hey, 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 out there, look, the Holy Spirit's inside of here. 
That's not what he's doing. It says in John 16, 14 that what the Holy Spirit is doing, that when the Holy Spirit comes, he will glorify the Son. What is he doing? The Holy Spirit's role in your life and what he's telling us about our redemption is he is pointing constantly. He is shining a spotlight on Jesus. That's his role. G.I. Packer, the great Anglican uh, pastor in, over in England, has wrote a number of great books, including a book called Knowing God. If you've never read Knowing God, go buy it today and read it. It is amazing. It's one of the best books written in the last century. But here's what Packer says in an account, going one day to preach to a church in England. And as you know about England, it's rather drab. It gets rather foggy and rainy. And so one day in the dark of night, he was riding to another church, and he could barely see because of the fog, and he wasn't sure where he was going. But he said all of a sudden, he, he turned, came around a bend, and there right in front of him, he could see two lights out in front of him in the distance. And it was two spotlights shining a light on a church. That is a picture of what the Holy Spirit does. You know the Holy Spirit is there when you see Jesus. That is what his job is, is to point constantly to us so that we know and love and enjoy Jesus. R.C. Sproul describes the Holy Spirit as the shyest member of the Trinity, not meaning that he doesn't do anything, but it means that he doesn't like to be up front. That's not his role. Tim Keller says that the job of the Holy Spirit is to say, look at Jesus. Look at how beautiful he is. Look at all that he is doing for you in heaven and what he has done for you on the cross. You see, the eternal reality that we have right now is that we have an advocate before the Father, and that advocate is Jesus Christ. That Jesus went back up into heaven, as we saw a couple weeks ago, the ascension, and he takes his wounds with him as a part of his glorified body. And therefore, he stands always and eternally before the Father. And when we sin, know what he does? He points down, he says, look what she and look what he did. And he holds up his hands, and he says, look at the scars. They are forgiven. Those sins are paid for. I've covered those sins. I paid for that, what they just did. I paid for their unfaithfulness. But here's the question, how do we know he's doing that? The Spirit is how we know he's doing that. You see, we have an advocate up in heaven who is eternally pleading for us, but we also have an advocate right here who is communicating to us and shining a light on the fact that that advocacy up in heaven is happening. And you need to be reminded of that every time you sin. Every day you need to be reminded of that truth, that the Holy Spirit shining a light on Jesus, showing us that we are legally and objectively righteous before God the Father because of what Jesus has done for us. So that's one thing. That's one thing he shines a light on in what Jesus has done for us. Our legal status is righteous, but there's another legal status that he points to and talks about this in Romans 8. Our legal identity is what we see there. Our legal identity in Jesus Christ. It says this, picking up in verse 14 of Romans 8. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you do not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received what? The spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. And in verse 16 it says, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. He's speaking. He's bearing witness in our hearts and of children and heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. What does the Holy Spirit tell us? He tells us that we're sons and daughters of the king, that you are legally, your identity now before God is in his adopted son. And we need this because in our hearts and in our minds, we are constantly forgetting this truth. That we live in a world in which we feel like we've been abandoned by the Father. In which we have fears and anxieties and we have sufferings and aches and pains. This is why Romans 8.15 says, going back to that verse, that God has not given us a spirit of fear. Because we are so fearful all the time. 
But instead, what he's given us is a spirit of adoption as sons to cry out, Abba, Father. I think about the sons, the song from Mumford and Sons. The line, says, the line says, how fickle my heart and how woozy my mind. That is us. Because there are lies in our hearts and there's lies in our minds. The circumstances of this world constantly communicate different things to us. We feel abandoned by God. But the message of the Holy Spirit is you are not abandoned. He does not abandon his children. He is right here with you. We seem to always want to believe that we are going to be punished for every single thing that we've done, but he says, no, he's not going to punish his children. He may discipline for a time. There may be consequences, but it's to bring you home safely. We're afraid that the fears, the things, the weights of this world, how many men have you felt this, that it feels like it's going to crush you, the weight of your family and your job and the activities that you have to be involved in, and you're afraid you're simply going to crumble under it all, and Jesus says, no, you're my child. I will undergird every step along the way, and that's what the Spirit reminds you of. Our hearts are filled with fear. The Spirit says, no, you're God's child and you are loved forever. That is a good counselor. He refutes the lies in our minds and our hearts. He's speaking to us. He's urging us. There's this beautiful verse in 1 John 3, 20. It goes like this, picking up in verse 19. By this we, we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, does your heart condemn you? Whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart. And he knows everything. It goes on to say this in 1 John 4, 4. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. The Holy Spirit is greater. He is wiser. He is gentler. He is kinder than you are to yourself. Than the devil will ever speak to you. And this world will ever speak to you either. He comes and refutes the lies. And he urges us to believe the truth of who we are, what our identity is. Do you see how wonderful the Holy Spirit is? How sweet and comforting his ministry is? Do you, you see how amazing? He, and it's not one or the other. What does he first come to do? He tells you you're a sinner. But then he comforts you because of that. He says he convicts you for your, for your sin. And then he lays before you Jesus Christ on the cross. And his advocacy before the Father for you. And he says you are forgiven and you are loved as a child. It is not one or the other, it is both. See, there's a difference between the work and the message of the, of the devil and his demons in our hearts and our minds and the message of the Spirit. See, what the devil will always do, he may convict you of sin in the sense that he will bring guilt into your life and show you that you sin in some way, shape, or form, but he never, never, never offers the forgiveness and the comfort of the gospel. So you know, you know you're hearing the devil and his demons when all you get is guilt and all you get is condemnation. The third thing, and I have to move through this, I'm just going to mention it and shine a light on it real quickly that the Holy Spirit tells us for sake of time, but he also tells us of our future. And he tells us simply by his presence. Ephesians 1, 13 and 14 says this, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance. The Holy Spirit comes to us as a deposit as a first fruit, we get to see and experience some sense on our hearts of the glory, glorious nature of God and of all of He's done for us. We get to experience, as the Spirit works in our life, some sense of the fruits and the, of being and looking more like Jesus in our lives. But we will not fully understand that and come fully in, our, in the presence of the glory of God and fully be all that God has created us to be until we enter into heaven. But the Holy Spirit reminds us that we have that hope one day when everything will be made right. 
There's a great line in the hymn, Sands of Time are Sinking, in one of the verses there, where it talks about how the sweet, how we'll know the sweet well of Christ's love. And it says that the streams on earth we've tasted from, we've just tasted, a little taste, but more, it says, I'll drink above. There, there we'll drink an ocean full. Here on this earth, through the Holy Spirit, we get a taste of the glory of God and all that he's doing in us. But in heaven, we get the ocean full experience of it. He tells us of our future, and that allows us to live with power now. People can yell at you and fuss at you, but you can stand up and use the gifts and the fruits that the Holy Spirit has given you. Because you know people can take anything from you in this life, but you have an inheritance that can never be taken from you. And you know that because you have the Spirit. So that's the first two questions. Who he is? What is he doing? How do we get him, though? And how do we hear him? How do we hear the voice of the Holy Spirit? Don't you want to hear that voice? Voice of comfort and assurance. How do we hear him? Verse 16 and 17 of John 14 says this, and that Jesus says, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth. It says that the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of truth. Again, what we need to refute all the lies of our own heart and our own mind in this world and the devils and the demons is we need truth. But the spirit of truth, how do we get him? How do we hear from him? Well, two ways, two ways I'm going to give you the spirit communicates to us. The first is this. Spirit communicates his truth to us first by authoring the Bible. John 14, 26, the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Now, that is generically speaking to us, but is specifically speaking to the guys who were initially hearing Jesus, which were the apostles, who would be the eyewitnesses, who would write the gospels, who would go to the nations and say, we have seen the Savior, the King of the earth. That's who wrote the New Testament. And so what he's saying, that when you go to write, when you give a testimony and a witness of all that I've done, the Spirit will bring to mind all that I've said. 2 Peter 1, 20 and 24 says this, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Here's the truth. The ultimate author of Scripture is the Holy Spirit. Where do we hear the voice of truth? Where do we hear the voice of God? In the word of God. In the scriptures. In the Bible. That's where we hear it. That's the first and primary way. The second is connected to it. The second way the spirit communicates his truth to us is by illuminating our hearts through the word. The Holy Spirit did not just author, author the Bible but he's also the one who makes it real for you and me when we read it. It was not simply real for those who first wrote it. It's real for us. And it's real for us because the Holy Spirit is taking that word and applying it to our hearts and our lives. The old theological term for this is illumination. That the Holy Spirit, just like he illumines Jesus and shines a light on Jesus, he illumines the word so that we understand it and so that it warms our affections and our hearts. So that we understand God's word. 1 Corinthians 2, 12 says this. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given to us by God. Not only is the spirit the author of the objective truth in God's word, but he is also the author of our subjective experience of God's word. Is it not real to you when you read God's word? Then ask the spirit to make it real to you. To open up your eyes and your heart so you can see. To illuminate your eyes, your spiritual eyes to know God's word. 
Two quick applications in regards to this point. I want to say two things. One, because the Holy Spirit is the illuminator of the word, then we can read the scriptures with confidence. Some of you are baby believers. You've you just now begun a process of being in a relationship with God. And you, this, the word, the scriptures, I, I studied it my whole life, and there are times I go, what is going on in this? This is so opaque, and this doesn't make any sense. And wh- like, why did you write this? And it's intimidating for new believers often to come to the scriptures. But if you have been given the Holy Spirit, you can come with confidence and ask him to illumine your heart and your mind so that you can understand. So don't let fear hold you back, but dive in and ask him for his help. Let me also say this. And we also see one of the other works of the Holy Spirit is that he gives, free, he gives gifts to this, his church. And you'll notice in Ephesians, he gives gifts. He says there are particular gifts and callings and offices that God has given to his church. There are apostles, there are prophets, there are teachers, there are evangelists. You know what all those people do? They exegete the word in various ways. Therefore, be in God's community. I've talked about this before, but people who simply study them along with their Bible, they get weird. Because sometimes you don't hear correctly, but God has given us the gifts of the church, different gifts that I have and other men in this church have, and the church, more broadly speaking, has to help us understand God's word because the Holy Spirit has spoken. That's why we're studying the Apostles' Creed. Listen, you may go, well, wait a second, what about all these debates in the church? And I would say, yes, there's lots of debates, but on these subjects that we've been talking about, there's no debate for those who are orthodox. That's why we come back to the centrality of what we're talking about in the Apostles' Creed. That the church over 2,000 years ago has agreed on this time after time after time again. So go to the church community, ask for help to understanding God's word. The spirit has illumined other people's hearts as well as yours. Therefore, we study God's word in submission to one another. I do it. I don't simply get up here on my own opinions, my own whims. I read commentaries. I listen to pastors. I talk to other people before I get up and communicate to you what I believe God's word is saying to us. Now, let me offer a warning here. To the overly mystical in our midst, or perhaps those who simply desire to rebel, and maybe they don't even have the Holy Spirit. If the Holy Spirit is speaking to us and illumines our heart, it is always based on the Word of God. When God communicates, if the Holy Spirit communicates something to you, it is never contrary to what is written in the Scriptures. So let me say this. If you come to me and say, I am living with someone out of wedlock, or I'm going to marry an unbeliever, and I've talked to God about it, and he's give, the Spirit's given me a real peace about it. You know what I'm going to answer? I'm going to say back to you. I'm going to say, listen, you've heard a voice, but it was not the Spirit of God. And you should be terrified by whatever voice you're listening to. You should be terrified. Because, and this is, this is the problem. We have this, this situational, experiential Christianity where we take our experience and we make it paramount and normative in our life without actually checking to see if the Scriptures has anything to say about it. The Spirit will not give you peace. Somebody else may try to give you peace, but the Spirit is not going to give you peace about things that are contrary that he has clearly spoken in the Scriptures. He is not a liar. He is not two-faced. He does not say one thing in the Word and then tell you something else. And so if you judge what you think is going on in your heart with the Scriptures, or better yet, go there and then determine what to do based on what they say. So always have a sense of what God is calling you to do. Go back there to the principles of what the Spirit has communicated first and foremost. That's a warning. Let's get back to the happy stuff. The second way the Spirit illuminates us through the Word is that we can read the Word over and over again and experience new heights of delight. You ever read God's Word, the same passage, and you've read it, you know you read it two weeks ago, but this time 
it warms your heart in a way that it didn't two weeks ago? Or you read it multiple years ago and this words just kind of leapt off the page in a way that they didn't before? Or your heart and your, your, your emotions and your affections were engaged? Why is that? Why does it appear to feel sometimes like a sermon or why the reading of God's word, it feels like it's written directly to you? Because it is. Because the Spirit is speaking inside of your heart and is applying it directly to you. It is afresh and it is anew. He is applying the truths of God's, his infinite eternal truths to you in a specific and situational way. It's like ocean waves that the word of God comes on us. The Spirit just speaking over and over and over again. Here's, here's what Jonathan Edwards says about studying God's word in one of his journals. He says, I had then and at other times the greatest delight in the Holy Scriptures. Of any book whatsoever, oftentimes in reading it, every word seemed to touch my heart. I seemed often to see so much light exhibited by every sentence and such a refreshing food communicated that I could not get along in reading. Often I would dwell on long on one sentence to see the wonders contained in it. Is the word of God sweet to you? Is it wash over and delight your soul? Do you speak about God's word like David did and like Jonathan Edwards does? If that's the case, then it means the Spirit of God is at work in your heart. That is the job of the Holy Spirit, to constantly make God's eternal, yes, it's 2,000 and 3,000 and 4,000-year-old word relevant today. This is why we don't reject it. That despite the cultural mores will come and go, and we may be, quote-unquote, on the wrong side of history for a moment, but the Spirit of God says this truth that you abide by all eternity. This is forever. And so he applies it to our lives, things written 4,000 years ago to today. So you want conviction, you want life, you want joy, you want power, you want to know the joy of Jesus, you've got to have the Holy Spirit, you've got to get in the Word of God because it is there that he speaks. One final question and we close. How do we receive the Holy Spirit? How do we receive the Holy Spirit? John 3, Jesus is talking to a Pharisee named Nicodemus. He talks about new birth. Because he must be born again by the Spirit. But then he says the Spirit is like a wind blowing to and fro. You can't control the Spirit. But we do have this promise from God, and it's a comforting promise. In Luke 11, verse 11 through 13, it says this. Jesus is speaking, What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? <clears throat> or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give, not just generic gifts, give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Jesus Christ said that you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, but the Father, your good Father in heaven, gives you what? The Holy Spirit. There is no greater gift that he can give you than the Holy Spirit himself. And the key there is what? To ask. When I would whine and fuss as a kid, my dad used to have this song he learned from Sesame Street. He would say, A-S-K, just ask. It's the same with the Holy Spirit. That's pedantic, but he treats us like children, right? So would you ask? Would you ask for the Holy Spirit to come convict you and to make you alive this morning? If you read in the Word of God and it has, it, is, it has felt dead to you, it has not felt alive, would you plead with him to make it alive? Would you plead for the Holy Spirit to do something afresh in your heart? Now, remember where we started. Remember, he's God and he's personal, which means when he enters your life, you better be ready because everything changes. So be aware of what you're asking, but would you be so bold to ask for that this morning? Pray with me, and we'll ask together, perhaps. 
Gracious Heavenly Father, Spirit of the living God, I pray that you'd fall fresh on me. That those who have walked with you for many, many days, but the reading of your word, their prayer time, you feel distant and you feel cold. Gracious God, would you by your spirit warm our hearts? Would you take the objective truth that your spirit is written of and you would apply it right where we need it this morning? Where we need forgiveness, that you would tell us of Jesus who is our advocate. Where we need the comfort of a father who calls us children, that we would see that we are now identified as children. Where we don't know how to pray, may your spirit of God, would you, in our anxiety, in our stress, in our sufferings, where we don't even know the words to give to you, that may your spirit give us a new language. May I be so bold even to give us a private prayer language, Lord, that your spirit would come out and speak from us so that we dwell more intimately with you. And Lord Jesus, that we know you better. Gracious God, I pray that those who haven't, Lord, they would invite the Spirit in today. They would invite you in, God on high. They would say, please come and change my life. That is simple and it's childish. But Lord, you're the one who said that if we ask, you will answer and you will come. So please, Lord, come. Fill us up. Amen.